Oh, yes. This is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show, sponsored by Cheshire Impact, on a mission to help people maximize their use of Pardot and Salesforce. CheshireImpact.com. Bam. All right, here we go. It's live. It's cranking. It is recording. I'm excited. Okay, this is an introduction that um, I'm going to struggle with because my guest today is such an awesome guy. He, an awesome guy and a thought leader, a visionary, a keynote speaker, Forbes top 10 online marketing experts, um, Entrepreneurs Magazine, top 15. He is, he is a person to watch. He's an acknowledged authority on things like digital marketing. And I've learned from him. I don't want to say growing up, but in my career, I've, I've learned from him. <laughs> And he also uh, has uh, several books out. And one of them we're going to get into today is on evolutionary psychology and how that ties into marketing. So many things to say. He was actually, uh, for 19 years, the co-founder and CEO of SiteTuners, a digital optimization agency. I've learned so much in the world of optimization from him. I almost said his name. Best-selling author of Landing Page Optimization, The Definitive Guide to Testing and Tuning for Conversations, and now the new book, Unleash the Primal Brain. The man, the myth, the legend, Tim Ash. Welcome to the show, sir. <laughs> Thanks, Casey. Very happy to be with you. You know, I, I tried not to lose myself in that, but there's so much. You have been so busy and such a, a cornerstone in the marketing world for decades. Yeah, uh, that's your polite way of saying I'm old. Yeah, you, <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. There's, totally. there's hopefully some wisdom that comes with all of that experience. Oh, absolutely. Ho hopefully there's something in here, but I know there is. So um, one of the things I want to do is uh, we're going to talk optimization. We're going to talk psychology today because you put so much of that work into uh, a book. And so I'm going to shut up here and, and pass you something. All right, so here it is. It's heavy, but I know you work out, so here it is. Ugh. Okay, here's Thor's hammer. Go ahead, grab that. Wow, that's that's a pretty. I know massive... fifty interviews, but you haven't you haven't used Thor's hammer yet. So no, I used Thor's to be hammer. a saber fencer in college, but that's a different kind of. Oh, weapon. We're gonna get into that. We're gonna get into that, Tim. But take Thor's hammer. It's the real one, and smash for me some kind of marketing myth, bogus strategy, misconception. Set the record straight once and for all. Oh man, where to start? Well, let's start with the big one that I opened my new book with, which is the lie of rationality. There's this notion out there going back to Socrates that if we only made rational decisions, the world would be a better place. And, you know, tame the wild horses of our emotional nature. We should just be Mr. Spock and everything would be wonderful. The in stoic, fact, right? We should all be yeah. stoics and just sort of like float around in robes or something. Yeah, that's right. And, and the reality is, no decision, and I mean this literally, no decision can be made without emotions. All your conscious mind can do is provide you with options and say, oh, and at any given point, we can literally take a million courses of action. So how do you narrow those down? That's the job of emotions. So the things that are strongly in our mind, things we want to run away from, things we want to run towards, those are the ones that prioritize our decisions and make them possible. We're literally powerless to decide without emotions. Yeah, right. It's that emotional side, and, and we get kind of cold and and dry. And we've spent decades of our lives optimizing landing pages and and looking at metrics and conversion rates. But there's that emotional side to it. And so you're saying it's it's not only a lie. It, this is like 
this is this is true of all these decisions that yeah the mind can bring up some things but it's that emotion side that it's the emotions are the ones that decide and what happens is after the fact your rational mind can make up a reason for it and we actually see this on you know brain imaging and stuff like that that the emotion gets made in one part of the brain and then you rationalize it i think it was science fiction writer robert heinlein that said man is not a rational animal he's a rationalizing animal and that right there is a fact rationalizing animal after the fact yeah why exactly did i make that call geez why did i choose that software and we don't know that all that stuff's below the surface the decisions are being made in a part of the brain that isn't accessible to your conscious inspection the part that doesn't use language the, the much more primitive evolutionarily speaking or more ancient let's say parts of the brain that we share with other mammals and reptiles and a lot of other life on yeah. the planet so why do we why where does this thought come from the the, the counter thought like why do we think that we can mr spock our way out of things be all rational and cold and- well that's actually western philosophy like i said it goes back to socrates and spreads throughout europe and gotcha. through the enlightenment and so on but if you actually look at it there are a lot of cultures that don't subscribe to that there are a lot of cultures especially in the far east that are much more communal that are much more about uh, let's say in japan they're notorious for saving face right so social concerns and emotional concerns are more important than truth or being right it's like let's give you a graceful way out of it so you don't feel bad that's a really important consideration and it's actually evolutionarily speaking the correct one so am i hearing this right socrates is wrong tim ash 2021 (laughs) socrates is wrong is that what we're talking about yes Yes. Uh, and, and so who else is wrong is Descartes. Back in the 1700s, he said, I think, therefore I exist. Well, I would change that around too and say, I feel, therefore I exist. Or rather, uh, I feel, therefore I survive. And so to me, it's, it's really important to look at things through this evolutionary psychology prism, which you know, we'll get to the book. But the reason I wrote it was because there are a lot of these misconceptions. And I really think that... Uh, to understand our true nature will make our lives easier, our careers better, the planet, hopefully to survive the coming climate apocalypse, all of that stuff. It requires us to be in touch with how emotional we really are and to understand that. I'm, I'm digging it. I'm digging. It. I feel, therefore I survive. Therefore I am here. I am. What do, what do I do with this? What, uh, well, I'm, as a marketer, there's a, there's a, you can, Think of this as the golden age of brain science. This is the last frontier. Okay. Right, where we crack the skull open and we can inspect it uh, with medical imaging. We can look at it from a behavioral economic standpoint and nudging people towards certain kinds of actions. We can look at it from a psychology standpoint. But all of this is basically trying to understand the brain and how it works. And to me, we're talking about marketing, right? Yeah. I had a pretty good career, a good run at SiteTuner, the say, agency man. I used to run. We created 1.2 billion in value for clients like Google, Facebook, Expedia, and so on. And most of it was this durable stuff. It was these neuromarketing principles. So if you want to have a long career as a marketer, my suggestion to you is don't focus on the technology. I don't care about, uh, what is it, this week, Clubhouse or virtual reality headsets from Oculus. Tomorrow will probably be 3D suppositories. I'm not sure what the next Uh, technology is. Snap. But whatever it is, 
it doesn't matter because as marketers, we're trying to influence the human mind. And if you want to understand that at a fundamental level, then you're going to have a great career as a marketer because it's just applying that knowledge. But if you focus on the latest technology, you're going to miss the whole evolutionary psychology basis for how to influence people. This just in, Tim Ash hates Clubhouse. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, sorry, I have a, uh, an Android phone. I like to get work done on my phone. So uh, oh, I'm not even eligible. Oh, not I know. Hard. I just started a jihad with all the Apple people. Seriously, you know what? I do have an iPhone. Uh, it's cracked. I need a new one, but it's an eight. I'm kind of a laggard. But yeah, I, I've got Clubhouse. <laughs> you go. I hope we you could be on there now, night. but no. No, <laughs> but, but the point is, is, is so right. You know, we spend a lot of time learning, skilling up on the tactical side, on the technology side. I mean, I, you know, do a lot of work with Pardot, all these marketing automation tools, but it's not the, it's not the main thing the the core thing to your point, tech changes all the time, right? Mm -hmm. iPhone, tablet, Apple IIe, whatever computer you have or will have in the future, those things change. But the mind, you can learn more about it. And um, and, and that's basically yeah. frozen in, in time. It's frozen in amber, if you will, because at, at evolutionary time scale, our brain isn't evolving. Actually, it is evolving even faster than ever before. But on the time scale of your lifetime, and like I said, the, the coming climate extinction uh, crisis, you know, that's just a few short decades that we're talking about. We're not evolving. So we evolved in one environment, we have to apply it in this bizarre environment with 8 billion people and giant civilizations on the planet. Uh, so it's probably important for us to understand what our true nature is so we can get on getting on and, and try to save the world. That's my goal. It's a good point. It's not a moving target. We, we kind of think it is, but in the grand scheme of evolutionary, I mean, evolution happens over centuries and I'm and that's really up. quick evolution if it's lots of zeros right yeah. yeah millions of years and yeah, for example we just started uh, raising livestock and the agrarian revolution was about ten thousand years ago and it's just now that we're trying to develop some in the population lactose tolerance genes making it okay for us to drink cow's milk without having intestinal issues right so that's ten thousand years and that's pretty quick for evolution but most right, we still have issues with it. Lower. Yeah, even yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a good point. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and it doesn't happen right. So the tech changes a lot faster than our than minds and bodies and biologies. So exactly. So think of the yeah. biology as frozen. This frozen. is it. Frozen in time. Yep. In in our in our time scale. And so, it's gonna okay. work for the rest of your career again if you're talking about it as a professional marketer. God, it's frozen for you for the rest of your career. For everyone listening, for the rest of your career, minds are how they are. Yep. So teach me. What do I need to know about the mind? What have you learned? And how long did you spend studying this? I mean, I know you've been a student of this for a long time. Well, really, my whole life. I came out to UC San Diego, uh, which is on the beach here in, in La Jolla, California. Wonderful place to be. There's a glider port and a nude beach next door. So you're not running good. away to Austin, Texas? Nope, not anytime soon. <laughs> uh, I like my electricity to work. Uh, oh, jeez. Oh, <laughs> Tim Ash just comes out swinging today. I love this. This is great, man. It's a hardcore <laughs> marketing show. You said hardcore. I'm bringing it. You're, yeah. But, but uh, my, I had two undergraduate majors, cognitive science and computer engineering. So I have experience with both uh, the software and the wetware, if you will. So the mind has always been a topic of interest for me in UC San Diego is an amazing school, very interdisciplinary. I stayed there for graduate school for seven years and 
I had people from linguistics, electrical engineering, neuroscience, and computer science all in my on my PhD committee. Okay. So it was, I've always been interested in the mind. And then I applied that to marketing, ran my own agency for well on 20 years. So now I'm kind of coming full circle. I don't need to apply it to marketing. I just want to explain how it works. But this has been my love affair my whole life. Yeah. Okay. So you've been, so this is fantastic, right? And so in this book and, and before we dive into it, little, little shameless plug, I got it right here. You got it over there. <laughs> yes. I'm going to do a little book high five, book high five, uh, book high five. Um, right. <laughs> okay. So unleash your primal brain. What, what do I need to know? I mean, I mean even suspend so the marketing part for, to start with, I'd love to just learn more about the brain. And then maybe from there, we'll take it into some of the, the things that you've learned from your decades in marketing that you want to connect the dots to. Yeah, absolutely. So to be clear, it's not a neuromarketing book. It's cool. a book that's basically the operating system for human beings. If you want to understand how we behave, you have to retrace the whole arc of evolution. There's some things we picked up from insects and reptiles and some things we share with all mammals. And then there's some bizarre species level things that were bolted on relatively recently and allowed us to overrun the whole planet. There are many distinctly human aspects. But if you want to Wait, understand- is that, is that where the Kardashians come from? Is that- is that... <laughs> that one, I'm going to have no comment on. No comment on that one? Okay. <laughs> So, for example, people think about dopamine, you know, oh, it's, yeah. it's anticipation of a reward. It's those three little dots when somebody is instant messaging you back and all of that, right? Guess what? We share dopamine with fruit flies. 400 wow. million years ago, insects had dopamine. It was a basic thing that works. And so we have to understand how this stuff layers on. Where do we pick this stuff up? And so if we're going to talk about culture spread, that's a uniquely human thing. If you're going to talk about motivation and whether to expend energy chasing goals, that's a much more general mechanism that exists for all life on the planet, or at least all animal and insect life. And that's why I decided I'm going to take all of it. And my purpose with the book was to not dumb it down at all, but to get rid of all the jargon, get rid of all these silos that people are operating in, and then trace out everything from important brain chemicals to memory to how we learn language gender differences culture storytelling our highly social natures it's all in there in kind of a chronological order so you can understand what we picked up along the way wow okay take me to dopamine okay and fruit flies i, I gotta <laughs> I'm, I'm intrigued well, dopamine is one of the important, I guess you could call them happy chemicals in the brain. And most people misunderstand its purpose. They think it's about chasing rewards. Really, it's about metering out energy. So is a reward worth chasing? Our brains are really expensive to operate. And even compared to our great ape cousins who use about 8% of their resting metabolism to power their brains, our brains are energy hogs. They're like the SUVs of gas mileage. We require a quarter of our resting calories just to power our brains every day. So they better be doing something useful. And the brain isn't just burning energy on its own. It's also instructing the body to do things and expect expend even more energy. So one of the th important things that dopamine does is it says, is something worth going for? Is mm. it important enough? Is it a survival goal? So it's metering out energy. Yeah, take another step towards that goal. Yeah, take another step and so on. It's there to give us these little nudges to try to hit goals. And if it does, all is good in the world. 
if it doesn't, and this is a really important function of dopamine, it completely re rewires our brain. There's literally kind of an oh shit circuit in our heads. If we don't get what we expect, it goes, wait, something went wrong. I better learn from this. Yeah. Means my model of the world wasn't working. It wasn't accurate. So the other thing dopamine does is when we don't get an expected reward, it upgrades our mental model instantly, especially if it's in the form of strong emotions or some really bad consequences that happen. So the way to think about it is dopamine helps us learn. If we're not trying anything, if we're in our safe little zone, if in the immortal words of uh, Pink Floyd, I've become comfortably numb, like the middle-class English people, then you're not learning. So you literally have to make mistakes to learn. And dopamine helps you update your mental model. Dopamine, what a son of a bitch. <laughs> I was going to be like, oh, this is great stuff. But but you're right, it, it's not. Yeah, I think I probably thought of it as the happy juice or something, but it, it it's the stuff that helps us learn. Interesting. Yeah, it helps us the stuff that helps us uh, move towards important goals and also to shut off that flow when they're not important. And a lot of times we kick ourselves in the head and we say, well, geez, I wish I could be more disciplined and I wish I could do this. And it's a real grind to get certain things done. It's your brain's way of saying it's really not that important. It's really not that important. Okay. So when stuff seems challenging, it's because you're not getting a dopamine help. Yep. Okay. And that's your brain saying, based on past experience, this isn't really helping my survival. Wow. <laughs> okay. So, so how do you, how do you trick that? How do you, how do you change that? Well, I don't think you do. I mean, like I said, the basic operating system in your head and the neurochemistry in there isn't going to change. The, a lot of times it has to do with the conditioning and the rewards you've gotten in the past. In other words, for mammals, we picked up this idea of, um, I guess you could say, running towards good things and running away from bad things and pain. Reptiles don't need that. They're just like, okay, it's smaller than me and it's moving. That means it's lunch and I'm going to chase it. They don't really need a memory. They just have automatic reflexes to get things done. Mammals, because we do want to learn from our life experience, have kind of aversions for things that are bad, affinities for things that are good. Yeah. And we need a memory to remember what those experiences were. Right. So your memories are tightly bound up with strong emotions. For example, if I said, do you remember uh, tying your shoes this morning? No, and that's because no. I just slipped them on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, you're probably wearing flip-flops, so hopefully wearing underwear. I mean, with Zoom meetings, you really can't tell. You really can't Don't tell. Don't want to yeah. know. TMI anyway. But I'm just saying, you know, you've tied your th shoes a thousand times. It's not something you need to remember. It's not something that's going to elicit strong emotions. But I bet you remember the first time you went on a roller coaster. Yep. Yeah. And you remember your first kiss, probably. Yep. Well, making an assumption, I'm assuming yep. you had one, Casey. Okay, a lot of nerds <laughs> listening to this may not. Yep, no, Just kidding. Well, um, it just happened last week, you know. <laughs> there you go. So married it's fresh for in your 12 mind. years, but it just happened, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but do you remember your thousandth kiss? No, probably not. Probably not, yeah. So it's only strong emotions that help us to form memories because they're establishing kind of a baseline for something important happening. And anything that doesn't evoke a strong emotion is actually forgotten. I'll actually, I'll say it another way. It's never even remembered. Most things don't enter your memory. In other words, 
You can think of the brain as a giant ignoring machine. There's all of this input coming in all the time, visual signals, uh, skin pressure, temperature, the relationship of all of your joints in space, which is why when we're eating a salad, we don't stick ourselves in the forehead with a fork, <laughs> yeah, right? right? We know where the, our body parts are in relation to the rest of the body. Yeah. All of this information streaming in, very, very tiny percentage of it has anything actionable in it. So we just forget it. The brain is a giant ignoring machine. So for things to make it into memory, they have to be really vivid and really important. And you have to sleep on them. Sleep is a super important life support thing. Yeah. And then they're integrated with other memories and eventually they'll decay over time. They're certainly not accurate. There's no Black Mirror like episode out there where you can do a life rewind at will with oh, every saw little that one? detail. Yeah, great show, but it's, yeah. uh, it's just a non-starter from a biology standpoint. So memories are only formed in the presence of strong emotions and strong sensory inputs usually. Hmm. So how, how do we make this podcast have that same kind of connotation? Well, hopefully the way other? that I'm talking about it in my tone of voice and the right. language I'm using and picking that fight with Apple people who are probably right. a substantial percentage of your podcast audience. All well, of those things are going to go, they just, they whoa, just... I've never heard a podcast guest <laughs> badmouth Apple people before. Seriously, they all just rage quit earlier, like 10 minutes ago. They're not even listening anymore. <laughs> oh, well, now we have a, the Samsung only audience. That's right. All the people that are behind and they choose different technology. And you had to stay on to protect the the integrity of all the Apple people. Of the show, right? Because yeah. if the show was only 10 minutes, people would be like, what happened, Casey? <laughs> Tim, Tim got mad at me. He kicked me off. Um, okay, so I, I love this seems like a great foundation because eventually we're going to chat marketing. But the and I can see, already see the, the connections of why you need to know these kind of things. The strong emotions help us form strong memories. Mm. Um, you gotta sleep on it. Brain's a giant ignoring machine. And I think about we ignore stuff that even our bodies are telling us, let alone some lame marketing campaign that comes by our, our eyeballs. And this, <laughs> That's right. You know, so we're constantly ignoring things. So I, I can see how understanding more and more about this is going to be crucial for later on, maybe getting people to not forget about you, not ignore you. Yeah. In fact, let's let's take that a step further. So yeah. as a marketer your competitors aren't who you think they are. They're not the other company in your sector that's the leading brand. The competition for you as a marketer is for me to do nothing. It's in psychology, we call it the status quo bias. In other words, I'm going to go on the same path. I'm not going to change a thing. There's a sunk cost to that. It doesn't require energy or thinking or actions on my part. So I'm just going to and use momentum and just keep doing the same thing I've always done. That's what you have to overcome as a marketer. Yeah. So if you don't move me off my comfortable spot and doing nothing, you lose as a marketer. Right. And you, and you basically have two levers to move me off my comfortable spot. One is aversion, make me avoid something like pain or loss. And the other is affinity or, ooh, that's wonderful. So the thing we know about that balance is that loss works twice as well, two and a half times to three times as well in some cases, depending on the circumstances, as upside. So one of the big mistakes I see marketers making all the time is they go, well, we're the nice brand. We don't badmouth anything, anybody. We don't talk about negative stuff. So I'm just saying you're fighting with both hands tied behind your back. Congratulations. Your message isn't going to be nearly as effective as your competitors that are doing that. 
I'll give you a quick example. Let's say you were interested in a tooth whitening product. A lot of uh, commercials say like, well, you'll have brilliant white teeth. Look, five shades whiter and that kind of stuff. You've probably seen those commercials, right? Yeah. Now, does that establish like a really high incentive for me to buy it? No, no. it doesn't. I can't even remember the this? brands that do it. I don't even, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. You don't even remember. But what, what about this? Oh, my gray yellow teeth made me so embarrassed. I wouldn't even open my mouth to smile. I had this weird grimace pasted on my face every time I pseudo smiled. I felt really embarrassed in social situations and I couldn't get a date and thought that one day I was just going to die alone with my cats. Okay, now do you have incentive to change something? Totally. A lot more. What I did was paint the negative picture and rub salt into the wound. So as a marketer, if you're not at least positioning against the alternative to doing nothing as a very negative thing, you're really, really missing the point. You know what? It, it's it's funny you say that because I immediately started thinking about there's a Super Bowl commercial last 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 year, and it was beer commercial. And I believe it was Bud Light roaming around, and they received a shipment of corn syrup, and they're like, "We don't use this." So they went to visit different beer manufacturers, and and they got to like Miller Light, and they're like, "Nope, that's not ours. We already got ours." And they basically were just slamming everyone for using corn syrup. And now every time I crack open a beer, I think. I don't know too much about that, but that thought that like corn syrup is in soda, it's in, it's in Coca-Cola. You're supposed to avoid these kinds of like high fructose corn syrup. And yet someone just said that's in a beer and you're like, Oh, that's, that doesn't seem that, right. Yeah. That's and gross. That, so like the yeah. aversion is making you remember it. Totally. That's the point. Totally. And we're likely like, to oh, act just, on it and buy the beer they want you to that doesn't have it. Right. Right. Um, yeah. The, in those kind of, Oh man, that idea of, I, I love about this conversation is it encourages you to not be the nice brand, not be the, not be the boring brand, but like go after it. That's the point is it's memorability to cut through all of the clutter and all the other commercials and everything else that's hitting us every day. You have to stick out and you have to have a point of view. And usually, like I said, the negative positioning is the strongest one. Mm. And we see this in our politics. How do you activate people, make them become tribal? Oh, yeah. Whole nother subject. You know, <laughs> you scare the crap out of them. Oh, they're coming for your your guns or your minimum your guns wage or your or your, or your your right yeah. to have abortion or whatever. It doesn't matter what the issue is. But if you want to activate people, you scare the crap out of them and you talk to them about the negative consequences. Otherwise, yeah, I'm just going to tune it out. Yeah, status quo. To your point. Um, there's this thing in, in, in business, a PEL, this employment thing. There's this, mm -hmm. this company I, you know, I've, I've used for my company. I don't know if you use them for yours, the PEO like you, they, yeah, pay, I used to use like a, a PEO one called Trinet actually. Yeah. So that's I'm what, very that's what I have. Yeah. 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 So people, all the little, little Trinet competitors are always calling and they're saying, Hey, we could help move you off a of big, bad Trinet. Um, Onto ours, but almost all the messages are to your point around affinity, like oh we could save you this, we save you that, and then I think about the the heaps of paperwork they would take yep. to move something as complicated because it has payroll and it has healthcare and all has all these things associated with it, and it just sounds like a massive pain in the ass, and it's like right, right. And by I, the way, I yeah. uh, within the past year I actually moved off a of Trinet to I'm not using a co-employer situation now. I'm using a payroll service called Gusto. 
Uh, oh, I've and, heard about Gusto. Yeah. Well, so, and, uh, but the, but what made me move from trying that wasn't that Gusto was wonderful. It was when I got fed up enough and I was like, yeah. these guys are charging me too much money and their customer service still sucks. And for the amount I'm paying, I should be getting more. And it was a few interactions like that. It was negative motivation that made me want to consider alternatives. Totally. That, that, yeah, exactly. And that would be the thing that, and then I have a conversation with you like this. And I don't know how Gusto attracts the ROI on this conversation, but perhaps they should sponsor <laughs> the podcast. Uh, they should certainly buy lots of copies of your book. Um, but yeah, it's it's those kind of things. The negative would drive me off of that platform. Um, and all these, all, but you know, all, to your point, all the competitors are thinking of trying it as a competitor. The competitor is me just not having time or the interest to move platforms. Yeah, you know, and whatever there's a there's is. a great book. Actually, let me take that back. An awful book with good ideas in it, written <laughs> a, a while ago, called "Spin Selling" by Neil Rackham. And okay. it's uh, the approach was spin is an acronym: situation, uh, problem, implication, and need payoff. So that's the spin part. Okay. And basically how it goes is like this situation, give me some facts. I want to verify the basics. Not a lot of value in that for you. Then I suspect that because of that, your situation, you have the following problems, confirm what they are. And then spend most of your time rubbing salt into the wound. Are you aware of the full implications of that problem? You're wow. staying on Trinet and, you know, for your company that's too small, you're paying $1,000 a month. Do you understand that that's $12,000 a year you're spending on a payroll service, essentially? They talk about fancy stuff, but they yeah. do, what do they really deliver? Right. You get that from ADP payroll or Gusto or whatever. So it's the rubbing salt into the wound. It's a very, very important step. And so you're basically taking me from the baseline, which is do nothing down into the depths of hell. Yes. And then the need payoff part is the opposite. You say, what would life be like if you didn't have those problems? What would you do with that extra time? What would you do with that extra um, HR expense that you don't have to spend anymore? And imagine that heaven, if you will. So you've taken me from neutral down to hell and then back up to heaven. And according to the spin selling model, I think this is wise, you haven't even talked about your product yet. Yes, right? Yeah. Right? You take them on that roller coaster down and then back up. And what you've done is by creating the contrast, you said, this is the true cost of doing what you're doing. It's not neutral. It's really horrible and negative. And here's what life would be like if you got rid of all of those problems. And by that contrast is what creates the value for your product or service. And that's what we're trying to do as marketers. Don't yeah. start talking to me about which plan do you want to buy, which features you want, or how great it'll be once I sign up. If yeah. you haven't taken me on the roller coaster, I'm not buying at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't care about your platform versus this platform and this sprocket, that sprocket. And to your point, that's a logic earliest point. That's a logical statement. But get take me to the depths of hell and then raise me up just a little bit and let me see the no not glimpse. a little bit go to the go to what the heaven is like go right and then to heaven start talking about it because again it's the difference it's the it's the contrast that's creating the value for your product or service you know i think about that that tv show survivor and mm -hmm. one of the favorite moments of that show for me is when they have these people and they've been on this some island somewhere starving eating rice out of a pot <laughs> and then they win a challenge and now they're at this like makeshift bamboo Taco Bell and they're having like fresh 
fajitas with margaritas and stuff. It's the <laughs> contrast when they had like water and rice. And it, it is the contrast. I'll tell you a personal story. When I, I went to this fantastic uh, YMCA camp and uh, uh, store camp in Jackson, Michigan. It's run by the, actually the Toledo, Ohio YMCA back in the day. And they had this program for high school kids called the ranch. And I don't know if they still have it, but basically you live on a ranch, you sleep in bunk houses, there's no running water, no electricity, you do chores, you take care of animals and all of that. And at the end of the session, a couple of weeks into it, uh, we, you know, got to take a shower and put on clean clothes and have a little dance. Wow. And I tell you something, after you've been slopping pigs and stepping in horse manure, to take care of your animals and and all of that to just take a hot shower and put on <laughs> clean clothes is such a giant contrast oh man um the contrast are the stories um I, I thought of one i wanted to share uh, back with you on that um was doing some military training and it, this was later on where i was sort of like a two-week thing and i'm up in upstate new york and we and we ate MREs, right? Packaged food for, yeah, for meals ready to eat, but yeah. really not ready to eat by humans. Right. And your, your whole <laughs> digestion system is like, we haven't adapted to this yet, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and so in meanwhile, you look at the army reserves over there and they're having like steaks on a grill and you're like, what is even going on here? Um, but I remember just, we were just, you know, working hard, sweating. Um, and it was like the end, they were going to be hopping on a plane to fly back home or whatnot. And they brought in like, pizza they must have ordered like a thousand domino's pizzas for everyone it was really <laughs> kind of cool but they also ordered salads and normally if there's a domino's pizza around i'm probably not opting in for the salad because i know it's just a little plastic container with little but you know what after having not fresh food mm -hmm. that was smushy and salty and kind of fake right for mm -hmm. two weeks i remember the crisp of that lettuce just being like so I didn't put dressing on it. I just was like eating lettuce going like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Going all bugs bunny on it. Yeah. Yeah. It, does this tie to story? Cause it feels like there's like a story arc here. There's the, the, the well, negative. I, well, the let's, let, let's talk about story because I think this would yeah. be useful for marketers as well. I have a whole chapter uh, in about storytelling in the book. So let's talk about the evolutionary reasons for story. The most fundamental evolutionary reason is to create that model of the world. We want to believe that there's causality, that things aren't just random. If this happens, it's usually followed by this. To be able to explain the world, we need causal chains. And so our brains actually make up interpretations and judgments and stories, even when they don't exist. And this explains conspiracy theories and a lot of other things. But we really get tripped up when events are super random. Yeah. When it's just things are just coincidence, that's where we attribute stories to them. And all of a sudden they become these complex, uh, like I said, conspiracy theories or something like that. But it, where we don't adapt to very well and where we lose money is in casinos because things really are random. Just because yeah. you, you almost got close to your number on the roulette wheel doesn't mean that you were close. <laughs> it's still a one in 35 chance of hitting a particular number. And it's going to be the same random chance next time. Right. You know, but casinos have learned this and they manipulate us, especially slot machines, the one-armed bandits. They're actually the worst odds in the place, about a 30% house advantage wow. versus one or 2% for say blackjack. And what they do is they design it so that those three in a row symbols that are supposed to be identical and line up, 
that you see near misses more frequently than they would normally appear. So you go, oh, I got two out of three. I almost got the three. And so they're actually manipulating you by showing you near misses, which makes you think you almost achieved the goal. And you can predict the pattern of it. So stories are fundamentally about the narrative of causality in the world. What's our model of the world? Uh, but there are a couple of other important aspects of storytelling. One yeah. is uh, it's a way of doing rehearsal. We spend a lot of time sleeping. We also spend a lot of time practicing, say, physical skills, basketball free throws or what have you. Stories are a way for us to get experience without having to go through the process. Hmm. If I tell you about that crappy food that you just told me about on that deployment, I, I just got some secondhand experience. I don't have to actually join the National Guard to get that. Sure. Okay, so it's a way of getting experience from other people. And the final reason for stories, and this is important from a marketing standpoint as well, is they're there to reinforce cultural beliefs and values because we weren't designed to survive alone. We're supposed to be part of a tribe. Originally, it was genetically related to us. So your relative tribe, if you will. Um, but now we have all kinds of artificial tribes as well. And we can talk about that. But basically, tribal cohesion is reinforced by stories. And it really is important what the belief system of the person hearing the story is. Because the same objective reality can be experienced very differently. Let me give you a quick example from the book. I'm going to tell you an objective story. In other words, this is something you could record with a video camera and see it happen. Okay, cool. So the bull charged the bullfighter who deftly stepped aside. And as the bull passed him, plunged his sword from above between its shoulder blades, striking its heart and killing it instantly. Wow. Okay, now that's an objective reality that you can document. It's like Hemingway. Thank you. Next well, so if I told fiction. this to somebody from <laughs> Spain who was into bullfighting, they think it was about tradition, about man versus nature, about being an impeccable warrior and all of the discipline it took for that matador to train. And if I said it to someone from PETA, mm -hmm. people for the ethical treatment of animals, they think this is barbaric. It's animal torture and murder, and you're paying for it by subsidizing it and watching it. And that practice should be ended immediately. Right. So the same reality being experienced very differently based on the cultural values of your tribe. Hmm. So one of the keys to marketing is to understand your tribe, to make sure you hit the mark and you're talking to them about things they care about instead of talking past them or even worse, talking counterproductively uh, because you, what you're saying goes against their values. Things they care about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Their belief system, their values. And so stories reinforce that tribal cohesion. And it doesn't matter if they're right or wrong, if they're accurate. That's not the point. The point is to have tribal cohesion. For example, if um, I said to you, you know, Casey, the world's flat. And you said, well, you know, I climbed up on the mast of the sailing ship. And from up there, there's a little curve to the horizon. I think the world is a sphere. You know what we do to you? Uh-oh. Throw you off the freaking mast because you're not a team player and you don't believe the world is flat. You're, you're sand in the gears. You're a monkey wrench in the machine. We don't Jeez. want people like you. We want people that parrot and repeat our tribal beliefs 
instantly and that creates better tribal cohesion. So there's a strong need for tribal conformity in people and we're very much influenced by the people around us and we can't get away from that. Uh, and again, it doesn't matter right, wrong or different, you have to comply and you have to fall in line. And if you don't, there's all kinds of sanctions ranging from censure and gossiping to denying you economic opportunities or ostracizing you and throwing you out of the tribe, which is the worst thing that can happen, except for killing you, which we'll also do if you don't get with the program. So we're very much kind of self-domesticated primates and we have to go with the flow of our tribal beliefs and our surrounding culture. Interesting. All these things, the, the primal side, what, what, what do you mean by the primal brain to unleash the primal brain? All right. Well, let's uh, basically we talked about it. Uh, there's an evolution to the brain. So there's the brain stem, which which is automatic reactions, things that are keeping the lights on. Yeah. Were you thinking about breathing last night as you slept? No, because your brain stem was doing that for you. And then above that level, there's the mammalian brain, which is again memories and emotions and and the combination of those things. And then there's the thinking brain, if you will. Now, the conception that people have is that thinking brain is there for two plus two equals four and microwave ovens and sending people to the moon. It's not. Most of our thinking brain is there to model our social relationships. The bigger our tribe is, the more wow. complex that is. So for people, for instance, it's something it might go something like this. Um, if I did a crappy job on your podcast and I ask you to introduce me to your friend who's a podcast podcast host as a potential guest on his show, you might not do that. And so it's to basically figure out the power dynamics, the consequences of our social actions. It's to get the most benefit out of being social without any of the minimizing the drawbacks of being social. The more accurate our sense of our tribe is, the better off we are. And so we spend our kind of default network in the brain is literally to think about social stuff, that neocortex, that new part of the brain. Yeah. As soon as you're done thinking two plus two is four, it'll start going back to, you, I guess you could think of it as gossip or modeling the, the social world around you. And, and so that's really important to understand. So that's what I'm talking about when I say the conscious brain. It's okay. the one that has access to language that can do computational tasks. It can also deploy self-control in limited amounts, which runs out very quickly over the course of the day. And that's the conscious part of the brain. Again, the part that really makes emotions and decisions and all of that, it's not even subject to your inspection. Call it your subconscious. That's what I call the primal brain. Gosh, the layers to it. You had mentioned the evolution of these things and borrowing from different creatures and different pathways. And it, and it makes sense, um, especially if things are firing without us even realizing it underneath all the, these tribal considerations, all these things are at, at play. Um, how, what kind of, and I know I've already sort of felt like there's all these tie-ins to marketing. If you were to sort of distill some, some real recommendations from, you know, obviously we need to read the book too, but like what, what kind of, what kind of things were well, eye-opening strategies? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things to understand is as highly social creatures, we really operate in two spheres. There was our tribe, which was about a hundred to 200 close tribe members that we spend most of our life with and wandered around the plains of East Africa with. 
And then there's strangers. We meet them occasionally. We might share food or exchange mates uh, for not inbreeding and stuff like that. But basically, we didn't have a lot of contact with other people. So we learned very different behaviors for in-group members and out-group members. In fact, there's the mother-child um, bond created by oxytocin. Most people think of that as like the cuddle hormone. You yeah. know, Molly simulates that in rave settings and things Does like that. Does it really? Yeah. But what it's doing is it's Wait, basically... It's, right, it's, we'll it's, come back to it. <laughs> all right. That's a two-edged sword. So yes, it bonds the mother to the child or the parent to the child, but it also creates aggression against outsiders. You don't want to piss off a female grizzly bear near her cubs. No. I promise you. Yeah. So that... And for human beings, there's this third category, which is that neutral and I don't know what your disposition towards me is you're not an enemy you're not a friend and so we'll give people the benefit of the doubt and if oxytocin is introduced again to use an example like at a rave uh, we feel we include those neutral people in our in-tribe that's what it does is it shifts the boundary of what we consider to be our in-tribe did you ex is this do you do experimentation and research for the book? On no, this, I'm not uh, Timothy Leary. I actually have never done drugs or drank alcohol. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of the few Russians you'll probably ever meet who doesn't drink vodka. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, yeah, uh, I thought it was a, is a national thing. But OK, so so this this aforementioned Molly thing expands boundaries and of who's in your in tribe and who's in your out tribe. But the point is that there's basically two tribes got it there's yours the and there's the everybody else got and it. that's it and it's it's a knife edge if you're on the wrong side of that you're going to get treated very differently so from a marketing standpoint it's important to understand that there's basically two types of relationships there's where we operate in the relational sphere or the transactional sphere in the relational sphere, it's about gift giving. It's about exchange. It's about obligation. If I do something for you, I can reliably know that you're going to do something back for me in the future. It's about clan. And then strangers come along. Well, I don't trust the strangers. So that's transactional. You give me the money up front, then I'll give you the apple. Because I may never see you again. And so it's really important to understand where you're operating. And in the world of relational stuff, gift giving is critical. And here's a key for marketers. Giving a gift obligates the person receiving it to give you something of greater or equal value. Do you yeah. ever see the Hare Krishnas back in the day at airports? They give you a little paper flower and then ask for a donation. Well, it took them about a cent and a half to make the paper flower, but you gave them 50 cents and change. And you feel bad. It's like, I don't even want to give you any money, but I'm kind of, you gave me a paper flower. So yeah. the gift giving obligates you. That's the key insight for marketers. Giving a gift to someone obligates them to give you something of equal or greater value in return. If that didn't happen, then all of our cultural stuff would break down. So you can obligate people by giving them gifts. And as soon as you mention money, then you flip into the transactional side. Then it's an impersonal relationship. It's objective. It may, mentioning money makes people more selfish, less likely to be charitable. It makes them more independent-minded and less cooperative. So keep people in the relational side as long as possible. Give them free gifts. What can you do that gives people free gifts? A download. Watch this video. 
free shipping, which arguably doesn't cost you anything and you have it built into your price anyway. Right. All of those things, as long as you don't mention money, you're in the relational sphere. You know, I, I just, an hour before our conversation, took a meeting with this company because um, they, they sent me a, a gift and it was through a friend of mine, Greg Sagal. I don't know if you know his uh, platform, Alice. Is one of those sort of gift-giving platforms. But if, in case you don't like the gift, they wanted to send me an Amazon Echo. And I was like, there's no way I want Jeff Bezos listening to my every, every <laughs> thought. So I was like, do you, are there options? You click a button and there was 2,400 other options. And so I found a nice Patagonia hat. I was like, this is great. So I took the call with him, even though, you know, and they, but they were cool. They're like, we're not trying to sell anything. And they literally were, they kept it in the relational sphere. We didn't yeah, talk I mean, money at all. And that's important. I'll give you a, just, let's do a quick little thought experiment. Let's say yeah. you're an internet marketing expert. Let's okay. just assume that. It's a stretch, but I'm talking to you. So <laughs> you say it's so. Um, all right. Then you say, you know, if you want to work with Casey, I charge a thousand an hour for my consulting. Great. So I come to you. I'm your friend. Let's assume that also. Okay. And I, and here's the two scenarios. In the first scenario, I say, hey, Casey, I really need some, some digital marketing help. And I know you charge like a thousand an hour to help people, but could you do it for me for like a hundred bucks an hour? Okay. So that's one scenario. Here's the other. I come to you and I say, Hey, Casey, I know you're a digital marketing expert and I have this thing that I need help with digital marketing. Can you help me out? Can we just sit down for an hour and, and you'll help me out? Yeah. Wow. Now, do you see how different those are? Now, objectively speaking, yeah. It, it, think about it from a Mr. Spock perspective though. You can help me for $100 an hour or you can help me for free. Which of those is better for you? Of course, the 100 bucks an hour, even if you'd normally charge a thousand, but you're much less likely to do it because I just put us in the transactional sphere. And you're probably thinking, Tim, you're such a cheap son of a bitch. You're beating <laughs> me up on price and devaluating who I am. Screw you, buddy. Yeah, right. Wow. But if I came to you with the mindset of, uh, can you help me? And I'm in the friend zone then you're going to be glad to do it for free. And that right there is the difference. Interesting. I, I wonder, I mean, I'd love this. Take this experiment uh, one more step. When you're trying to get people to write reviews for you, whether it's for your book or for your company on things like G2 Crowd, um, when we offer them something in exchange, like if you do this- An review, Amazon gift card, right? I will, yeah, I'll send you a gift card or a hoodie. I feel like maybe that's taking us transactional, even though it's a gift. Well, it's, it depends. So if you actually mention money specifically, that's bad. If it's a $20 Starbucks gift card. Okay. But if you say, Hey, I'd love to send you a hoodie and personalize it for you. That's a gift. Mm, per so, right. there's, so even that can, you know, there's subtle things at play. Well, but how many times have you received something generic? Um, you get, a nice fruit gift basket around Christmas time and everyone at the company signed the card for you. You feeling special? No. Yeah. I mean, right. You're, you're, you're not. I mean, it's, you know, they had a drop shipped from you know, fruitbaskets.com right. or whatever. You, you look at the card and you're trying to see if it was printed or if it was actual ink, you know? Yeah. Now, now here's what we used to do for clients. We used to get them high quality bobbleheads of themselves. So what we do is we'd call up their... Um, colleagues or their spouse in some cases say, hey, what does this wow. person care about? 
and then send us a couple of pictures of them, of their head. And then we'd have this bobblehead made. One of them was a guy that used to be a fighter pilot. So we had him in a Navy jumpsuit holding a helmet under his arm. Wow. And another guy played guitar. So we had him playing the guitar. And it's a realistic version of the bobble of the person. And we didn't even bother to write from the agency name across the base because they're going to put it on their desk or on their shelf in their office. And it's always going to be visible. And we don't need to brand ourselves. It's the fact that they're thinking about us. Now that's a personal gift and that's yeah. very different. Not even your logo on there. To Not even it. our logo. Nope. Wow. Yeah. That would be a, memorable. That would stay on someone's desk for sure. Yeah. And so, so you can send me an $80 gift basket or an $80 bobblehead. I can, and the care that we put into personalizing it and making sure that we uh, understood a hobby or an interest of theirs, all of that, that just speaks volumes. You know, like the thoughts that go into the gift, when you bring up this story, it reminds me of, you know, the, the old days when I remember going like, Christmas is the next day and, and like the day before I'm going to the mall to see what kind of cheap stuff I can randomly buy people last minute. <laughs> and in eventually, I think it was my wife even called me on it one time and, and I'm glad she did because it sort of woke me up. I was like, wait a minute, like you can't, you know, half-ass a real good gift, you know? And so now I, I actually enjoy and take pleasure and pride in the idea of thinking about it. And if I hear someone needs something or I just thinking about what would be something that really touches them as opposed to, you know, just that factory you know, drop ships type thing. Last yeah. Minute. And well, I'll, I'll use another perfect example. You just held up earlier in the, in the, I cast the copy of my book because I had sent it to you. Yes. Right. Right. You did that signed. I personalized it. I, I, I went and I mailed it myself at the post office. Are you really? And, you have yeah, people? I yeah, know. I don't have people. Not, not for that. That's a personal thing. And I, that's cool. I also get my exercise walking to the post office. So that's, that's it's a, uh, it's a double benefit, but <laughs> you know, it's, it made you predisposed differently to me just having it in your hand. You when know, you, we started you also the signed the inside cover, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Personalized it. And you know, the cynical people in us go, Oh, did you get an intern to write? That looks, that nope, looks like it's actual that. ink and you can see it, it through is. the book cover and everything, right? Yeah. It's not a stamp. It's not, <laughs> It's not a stamp. Exactly. So actually, there is this in between set of gifts, which are non personalized. And I think writing a handwritten note, or creating that custom bobblehead and the thought that goes into that or sending a personalized book that you've autographed with an inscription, that extra touch in a very low touch automated society where everything is efficient, that stands out even more. Remember, mm -hmm. we were talking about contrast before? Everyone else treats me like a number. This person cares about me and sees me. One of our most fundamental needs is just to be seen, to be acknowledged, to, to be valued for being ourselves and nothing else. How, how, how are you best seen? How, how do you see people? How do you help them feel seen? Mm, um, wow, this is getting a little philosophical in the first yeah, from man. marketing. Yeah, okay. Yeah, man. I'll go. I'll play. I got to challenge you. I got to shake it up a little bit. I mean, you, you got you got the, all the interviews going on. I got to shake it up a little bit, you know? <laughs> I'm your huckleberry. All right, I'll play. <laughs> uh, I, I think that uh, the key is uh, intention and attention. If you're talking about it on a personal level, yeah. it's one-on-one. -on -one. It's turning off the phone at dinner. 
it's asking questions. I'll never forget. There's Walter Cronkite was a famous newscaster and interviewed a lot of people. And, and somebody once asked him, well, what happens when you get a boring interview subject? Hmm. And he had this deep gravelly voice and thought about it for a second. Then he answered, there are no boring interview subjects. There are only boring interviewers. Hmm. And I thought that was a great answer because if I'm focused on you, if I really want to understand what makes you tick, if I'm all in on that, I should be asking you questions all the time. And it doesn't matter the most mundane seeming person or the most boring situation. You ask them about stuff that they care about and they open up about that. Boom. It's just like the floodgates open. And all of a sudden there's like these hidden worlds in there of, of beauty and interest and meaning and everything else. And that creates the connection. Yeah. And the passion. I think fine. Sometimes as an interviewer, it's, it's finding that topic because if you don't find it to your point, the interview you know, to Walter's point, if, if the interview doesn't find that point and you talk and you both are talking about things that neither of you want to talk about, then it, it can be boring, but instead you need to find the thing that really ignites that person. And then away you go off to the races. Yep. Wow. And I like getting personally getting to that juice and that kind of that level of connection. So I'm always seeking that stuff out. I'm always asking people all kinds of questions. What kind of, what kind of questions? How, how do you, how do you, how do you get to that juice? Well, again, it's, it's not like a set formula or anything. Okay. One of the things that I do lately is I watch for body language. People, I'm not into neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, or I'm not a secret service agent who can tell what people are thinking by looking at them, anything like that. But there are a lot of truth responses that you'll see in people. A posture change, uh, subtle things like whether their feet are aimed at you or away from you off to the side when they're talking to you, hmm. micro expressions that cross their face, or you, know, you ask them something and they roll their eyes or they snort or they laugh. And those truth responses are like, okay, there's something here. There's something with emotional potency here. And let me open that up. And so I follow yeah. those. That's, that's well said. Well said, you know, interpersonally, as well as, you know, the, even the bigger picture of the people that we're trying to talk to you. Are, are we talking to people in the right tribe? Are we talking about things that they care about? Have we given them time and attention? Um, I think it's Dan Sullivan has this, point where everyone's competing for your attention but no one's competing to give you attention mm -hmm. um, and that always struck me as something that can separate you out from the other person absolutely man i'm into that yeah like let's let's go let's do that so my question to you now is like who are you who are you <laughs> you're famous i've been to your conferences i've read your book um you're Russian. You don't drink vodka. Can you take me back in time to like little Tim days? Oh, what was it like? Tim. Where'd you grow okay. up? I grew up in Moscow in the USSR, a country that doesn't even exist anymore. The no former kidding. Soviet empire that fell apart. And when I was eight years old, my parents decided to leave the Soviet Union because my dad was Jewish. My mom was ethnically Russian. He was also, you know, goes back generations in, in Russia, but basically there was a lot of anti-Semitism and discrimination against Jews. And so sure. he wanted me and my younger brother to have a better life. And yeah. so my parents actually, for us, decided to leave the country and they didn't even know where we were going. This was early seventies. They just cracked open the doors to allow Soviet Jewish refugees to start leaving. 
and you had a choice of four different countries you could go to okay. that were accepting refugees. Israel, of course, that's where you're ostensibly supposed to go. Australia, Canada, and the U.S. Mm. And so we ended up in Rome, Italy, and deciding where to go. And the, most of the people we were with, the cohort, were thinking of going to Canada. And we're like, well, it's not any colder than Russia, so that's probably okay. But then my dad calls up his uncle, who's been in, had been in the U.S. since the 20s, and he had this apartment on Madison Avenue. It was a business success in the U.S. Mm. So he calls him up, collect transatlantic call. This is 1970s. I mean, collect. It was a big deal. Yeah, with the operator. and I've never that done stuff. that. I can't imagine. Yeah. yeah, it was like many dollars a minute back in 1970s dollars. And so he calls his Madison Avenue apartment, no answer. But they transferred and forwarded, of course, like all good Jews, he's wintering in Florida to his place in Florida. This is like in February or something. And my dad reaches him and said, hey, Uncle Saul, it's, it's Sasha. And, you know, we're in Rome and we're thinking of going to Canada. And, and my great uncle said, no, Sasha, come to America. I'll take care of everything. Wow. And that five minute collect call is why I'm a, an American and not a Canadian, eh? Hey, wow. Yeah. And Sometimes arguably life turns on stuff like that. What, what if he hadn't connected with them on that call? Man. That's it. Then we'd just be in Canada and we'd reach out to him after that. You, you'd still be in the set of frozen right now, you know, <laughs> gathering ice cubes, you know, um, Although these days, Canada's looking a lot better. This country's it, it, getting a little squirrely. I'm, they, they got a pretty heavy lockdown going on right now, for better or worse. But but back to your point, that 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 call said, come to the U.S. Wow. And do you, by the way, do you remember anything from? So you from the Soviet days? Yeah, I do. I, I started second grade there. I remember going to school. We had wow. to wear these formal uniforms like the girls wore these dark brown dresses with white aprons and we would have to wear gray wool suits. Imagine Ooh. an eight-year-old in direct sun coming through the window in May, uh. trying to sit through a day of classes in a scratchy, coarse gray wool suit. Not the best idea ever. Man. So yeah, I do remember some stuff and I've been back several times in the, in the decades since. Uh, it's changed quite a bit, I have to say. No kidding. And then do you remember learning English or did you already... No, no, you know, that was a funny story because when we, as soon as we got here, our parents made, I believe, a, a tactical mistake, which is they wanted us to assimilate. That part's good. But as kids, you automatically vacuum up knowledge and languages and stuff like that. If, if you're younger than being a teenager in puberty, you pick up foreign languages very easily. So mm. our parents just stuck us in a public school. I was eight and my brother was five. And for a fact, I know within three months we were fluent in English. Wow. So especially for younger kids. If I, I don't believe in bilingual education for younger kids, just stick them in the school system. They'll be English fluent really quickly and also wow. assimilating the culture much better for older kids. That can be a problem sometimes, you know, high school age and, but definitely for younger kids. So yeah, the mistake that they made though, was saying, Hey, we want you to only speak English at home. And that was a mistake. Instead, they should have said, we only want you to speak Russian at home because we were swimming in this ocean of English outside. Yeah, the you already had enough English. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so the, uh, my suggestion to anyone who's moving to a different country is have your kids speak their native language at home. Did, did that, I mean, does that made it fuzzy for you to speak Russian? You know, did you lose well, a lot of it not doing I, that? I, when I went to college, I'd only interacted with my parents, a few Russian friends along the way. So I didn't really have a chance to speak Russian much, but I think I have a good ear for sounds and accents. Okay. 
And so I actually retain quite a bit of it. I was doing a keynote at a big conference in Moscow about three years ago, and they weren't expecting this. They were expecting American expert team Ash to talk about <laughs> digital marketing. And I go up there and the first thing I do is I start flashing black and white pictures of myself as a little kid and a baby in Moscow and speaking fluent Russian. And they just freak the hell out. Wow. Uh, so I, I can still fake a Russian accent, a Moscow accent. My word supply is diminishing, but I could pass for a local if you don't ask me any of the cultural stuff. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. That's so cool. In, when did you get into computers? When did you know that, like, you know, you wanted to sort of pursue a path in that direction, eventually go to school for it? I was uh, in junior high when the first personal computer started coming out. And there was this club at another high school that they had floppy drives. Yeah, do you oh, remember yeah. which kind it was? Was it like yeah, Apple, it was the Apple Apple II? Yeah, floppy yeah. drive. But before that, there was the Commodore PET. Get this. There was an old TV style CRT tube and you loaded the programs from audio cassettes. Ooh, right. Text-based programs. Like a 10 by 10 grid with the Enterprise and Klingons and stars and the, the K for Klingon moved around to different places wow. on that grid and it took 30 seconds to load that from an audio cassette load the game if you wanted to play it so i caught the early days of that stuff yeah man um i just caught the, the tail end of like the apple 2e is what i had a chance to mess around with so so they have these things they're finally floppy drives they're no longer on punch cards and and <laughs> arcade yeah, and it was like color that. vector graphics Ooh, that's cool stuff too instead of just text-based yeah yeah so they just you just attracted to this like right away and just yeah. And also there was that practical side. My parents, of course, were first generation immigrants. And it was like, you know, you, if you get a, if you're a computer guy, you'll have a job for the rest of your life, which is true. It's very practical. And so they want to make sure I was set up. And I was thinking I was going to do a minor in visual art because I'm also an artist and a photographer. And they're like, okay, that's fine. You can do that as a minor, but just make sure you do the computer engineering part. Right. So that's kind of how that conversation went. Yeah, I, I wouldn't imagine that. You know, mom, dad, I really want to be an artist. Thanks for bringing me to the U.S. Uh, I'm just going to be a painter. You yeah. Know? <laughs> a little drawing, a little poetry, a little photography. I'm all set. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Thanks I, for I don't the need, boost. I don't need school either. I'm just going to, yeah, I'm going to hang out around the house. <laughs> now, that wasn't an option. That's one of the reasons I mentioned earlier that I stayed at UC San Diego for graduate school. And I was in the Ph.D. program for seven years and would now be called machine learning or A.I., basically teaching computers to learn from examples. Yeah. And um, I did that for about seven years. And then I just had this entrepreneurial itch and I'd worked for big companies during graduate school. And I saw that as the soul killing enterprises that they were, and I didn't want any part of that. So I said, I'm going to start my first business. So I actually took down 2000 square feet of office space. I got a desk, a phone, a computer, and I called up my girlfriend and I'm like, hey, guess what I'm doing right now? I'm running around my office naked because I can. Because I can, <laughs> you know? hey. You know, and that's how I started my first internet consultancy and we helped launch new.coms. Wow. Well, you know, no, that was before Site Tuners even. That was, yeah, that was before. That was a company called Future Focus. We would help companies 
launch. We'd help them get their first round of venture capital funding. We would build database enabled web applications, which was wow. really cutting edge back in super 1995. Nerdy. Yeah, yeah, super nerd. <laughs> yeah, you definitely out nerd me here. This is fantastic. This is great. Yeah, um, well, I always joke that I'm a recovering technologist. You know, I don't touch yes. it anymore. I've yes. done enough damage. I think uh, my basic nature, and this is one of the reasons that I actually um, sold off my share of my agency and stopped doing the conference series that I ran here and in Europe called Digital Growth Unleashed because I wanted to focus on the evangelism. So the book, the keynote speaking, training marketing departments or doing solo advisory consulting, that's my passion. I hope mm -hmm. that comes through. And I just wanted to get rid of everything else that wasn't on mission for me. And even just now getting super meta, like you lit up a bit when you just described that passion you have for those particular aspects, the evangelism, the teaching, um, you know, they're probably the eye-opening moments of people you're, you're instructing and they're like, Oh, they get it. Um, I could see that really being something that you want to pursue. So, so you had an agency and that's, that's, you know, I, I, I had, had, have your, your book. Um, oh, the other one, you mean the landing yeah. page optimization one? Yeah. yeah the that, funnels. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that's, uh, I guess, the Bible in conversion rate optimization. It's sold about 50,000 copies and been translated into six languages, which for a, a business book uh, for practitioners is kind of a big, big deal. It is a big deal. And, you know, I actually a fan of your conferences as well. So, so you, you transitioned out of that. Do you still keep in touch with SciTuners or is that kind of like? Oh, absolutely. It's run by yeah. my business partner, uh, Marty Greif now, and it's, okay. it's successful beyond anything I ever got it to. So it's just skyrocketing. In fact, in the middle of the pandemic, he's tripled the business, which is amazing. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So uh, that just goes to show that you should do what you're passionate about. That's the bottom line. Know yourself. If this is one piece of advice I'd give my kids, but of course they're teenagers, so they're not listening right now. It's understand your basic character and put yourself in a situation to maximize that. Don't go against the currents and be in situations where you have to grind it out because it's against your true nature. So yeah. I wish I had done that earlier. Yeah. I wish I had just, you know, made the commitment to do me better. Yeah. And you know, it's a moving target too, because your mm -hmm. interests and passions start and change and shift. Yeah. And, and as to... you go through life, uh, when you get meaning out of changes at different life stages and say having kids versus not that sort of thing definitely affects you. And I'm, and I'm sure the, the existing thing, the status quo, like, like you'd even mentioned earlier, it can be, it can be kind of cozy be hanging out. In yeah. Quo. You, you know, it's, it's really funny because you, then you mentioned that because I worked at a big defense contractor back in the day called SAIC. I was still yeah. in, was um, in graduate school and I worked there for four years and it was technically interesting work, worked on a variety of projects, but I kind of hated the whole environment. It was just too many nerds in one place. <laughs> and you know, the, the you know, unofficial motto that we used to joke about the company having, it was all about billable time. So it was like, we sell scientists and uh, no, we, we burn scientists and we sell the smoke. That's what uh. SAIC did, right? And so anyway, so I'm in this company and I really hated it. And I would just complain. And it took me six months of complaining to all of my coworkers before I just quit the job. I didn't even have another job. I just had to create the impetus. And that goes back to what we're talking about. It was comfortable. I was making mm -hmm. a lot of money. And so I had to create discomfort. So I went negative. And I complain, it probably wasn't fun to be around me during those six months, but that was my way of getting out of it. 
of overcoming the comfort of the money and the fact that I could technically do the work and that it was interesting work. You created the discomfort, so, changed yeah, your dopamine Yeah, that's what levels. I used to leverage myself and crowbar myself out of that place. Yeah. Suddenly the rewards weren't the same. And then and the reward to get the hell out of Dodge was, was increased. Yeah, the, the, the motivation to do something about it and to change grew as a result of me wow. digging at the dissatisfaction. Yeah, just di digging the knife in there <laughs> at the wound, yep. the salt, like you said earlier. It all really kind of ties back around. I, I have a hypothetical question for you. Sure, uh, hit me. I may or may not have a time machine that I invented, um, and it may or may not be <laughs> in my backyard covered in a tarp here in Nashua, New Hampshire. Um, Post-COVID, come visit. We'll get some lobster, and I'll let you use the time machine. You know, we'll dust it off. It sounds like a plan. The acorns out of there. Um, so you get to use this time machine, but it's particular. And you go back in time to after you just got your undergrad, you just graduated. I know you've done a lot of education. So it's particularly interesting. And if you want to make one extra stop, you, you can. But the primary stop is you get to go and visit yourself a few days after you've graduated with that degree in computers. Um, and yeah, it was co cognitive science, computer engineering, double major. Yeah. Dub okay. Cognitive science and computer engineering, double major. That's cool. Um, you get to meet yourself a couple days afterward, just in case you were celebrating. Um, what would you say? <laughs> what, what kind of advice would you give yourself? You've done all these things. You've, you've learned about the primal brain. You've, you've experienced it. You've run businesses. If you can go talk to graduate Tim, what would you tell him? Great question. Well, for sure, I would tell them, yeah, get the master's degree, take a couple of years to do that, and then punch your ticket. Don't stick around for seven years and not finish your PhD. Because one of the things I realized is that getting an advanced degree in computer science only helps you if you're going to teach at a top university. And that was never my intention. It was more like inertia. My dad had his PhD. My mom had her master's. So, of course, I'm going to get my PhD. That's just what smart people do. Right. And it was just a waste of five years, basically. I should have made the commitment to move on with my life. So get the master's, that's enough. It's an advanced degree and leave academia as fast as you can. Absolutely. That's for sure. The other is what we just talked about is understand who you are. I mean, there's a lot of personality typing tests like Myers-Briggs or DISC or Ocean. There's a lot of different models. Colby. And, yeah, and, and understand in what environments you're effective and look for the environment. Mm. So double down on your strengths. Don't try to shore up your weaknesses or row against the tide. That would be my other advice to my younger self. Find the environment where your personality gives you the most leverage, which I've done now, but in my mid fifties. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, follow up question. Would you listen to yourself? So here's the tricky part. And I've learned this, like I said, raising two very strong willed teenagers. No doubt. Remember that dopamine we we're talking about? Dopamine is there. The only way to learn is to make mistakes. Yes. So if you don't make your own mistakes, you don't learn. And it's so that's in a way what you're saying, or what I take you to be saying is if you could go back and reparent yourself, what would you say to your kid's self? And what I realize now, here's the the tension in that. As parents, or as our wiser today selves without the time machine, we want to minimize the pain for our kids 
or for her younger self. And the thing is, they're not going to learn anything if they don't take the hits. So I don't know if that sounds fatalistic, but we all need to go and make our own mistakes. So I probably wouldn't have listened to the advice. Yeah. And it's, it's fine too, though, because it sounds like you, you probably wouldn't have told yourself. Um, I mean, you know, there's the master's thing, but in general, you're just, you're encouraging yourself as opposed to trying to say, Oh, you know, watch out for that, that X, you know, or, or uh, don't work at that company. You're like, I, that was a powerful lesson that I, I worked there. I learned that and I moved on. Um, yeah. And I mean, the, the only thing, my personality is I'd stay in things too long. I keep investing long. in uh, just because I see a perfected vision of it and I want to make it better. And so I kind of like, yeah, I can make it better. And so, so whether it's been in relationships or in business situations, I've stayed at things too long. And so I would say fail faster would be probably another good piece of advice I'd give my younger self if he were to listen. Powerful stuff. I have a, I have a, I have a question. I've heard that in, in Russia, smiling tends to, people tend to think you're crazy. Uh, yeah, they think it's kind of creepy and it's true. If you go back and look at my Soviet era photos for, well, first of all, they're all black and white for the most part, Yeah. but there's like no smiling in formal portraits in school or in family pictures. No, you just like, so the, one of the first family portraits we have in the U S is color. And at least my brother and I are smiling with teeth. My parents are smiling, not showing teeth, but it's progress anyway. Right. They're smiling. Right. It in. Is that true even to today with like, you know, like business meeting and I'm over here smiling and you're like, that guy's crazy. Or is it kind of softened since? Well, I don't know about the, 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 the Russian culture these days, but you know, in a sense, I don't care. I, people accuse me of having permagrin and always smiling these days. <laughs> I know, so. you're yeah, smiling a lot. <laughs> well, and why wouldn't you bring your full self to it? I think one of the silver yeah. linings of this pandemic and this, moment that we're collectively sharing is that people are willing to get more real. You know, yeah. it's not just like some artificial professionalism versus uh, personal life. We're bringing more of our whole selves to it. It's like, there's the messiness of my life. There's the cat jumped into the scene on the Zoom meeting. There's my yeah. kids screaming. Well, whatever it is, that's just life. And to create these artificial masks, I think doesn't serve anyone. I think it's better to work from an integrated whole place of being more of yourself in more situations. Yeah. I, I feel that way with the zoom backgrounds. You know, I, I like seeing your background. Not, if it's a little messy, maybe that's a wake up call that you need to clean it up, but like you've got a fascinating <laughs> background, you know, mine's yeah, all my conference hell. badges, but, but it's real. It's not like a, a, you know, fake one on there and those have their place, I guess, but I also just like seeing where people live, you know, and it's, it's the real us as opposed to the, the, sanitized version of us that gets to work yeah know, exactly i just actually recorded because of the pandemic um here in my home office with that as a background my linkedin learning class mm. uh, about neuromarketing in fact so and they said you know we did a scouting i walked them through the the house and they said well this looks like a good spot but you know you, you adapt it's not like we're gonna yeah. have a perfect studio in the bay area that i fly up to and record the course and it's just fine. I'll tell you what, it looks super professional and yeah. it's a great course. And so, so I think we need to question some of our assumptions about separating work from home. I think a lot of those get smashed permanently, even um, with the, with the COVID that persists forever. Um, but 
I wanted to get ask you one other question. Fencing. Tell me about this. <laughs> if we get in a bar fight, are you going to protect us all? If I like find you a, a coat hanger and I straighten it out or tell me about uh, don't even need thing. that my uh, my tai chi master i'll switch gears for a second because yeah. after fencing in college i also studied tai chi as a martial art for five years he said look you don't need anything here's a magazine roll it up take your shoe off anything is a weapon and if you've been to prison i'm just <laughs> guessing here casey you know that to be a fact no just joking uh, but uh no i've actually been um, twice <laughs> okay twice but it was all, it was all, my brother used to be a police officer. And so I did a, a couple of ride-alongs with him. Oh, sure. Ride-alongs in air quotes. I got you. Like, I've been to jail twice. Yeah. Yeah. But go ahead. Go ahead. So yeah. <laughs> weapons everywhere. Yeah. Well, anything can be a weapon. It's just another joint that you extend on the end of your, of your wrist. So, wow. But uh, I, I started fencing in college. I was a walk-on. I eventually ended up being pretty successful. I was a I uh, won the Southern California Conference. I won all CALs, which is all the UC campuses, wow. uh, the individual and team level. I was athlete of the month at UCSD. My win-loss record was 31 and two my senior year. So that's, that's pretty good. 31 and two. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, if you, if you put anything in my hand, I could probably, you know, fillet you and slice you up. In right a few seconds roll up that magazine so so it sounds like it was tai chi or the fencing sort of just the movement in the body and also the defensive and the or offensive um have, have you kind of always been a student of these kind of disciplines well i would say that um i'm going to give you a quick formulation that i came up with yeah of what it takes to master life okay so this is the secret to life the universe and everything it's not 42 <laughs> okay you need to master three types of energy. There's internally generated energy. What do you do with it? There's oppositional energy and there's cooperative energy. And as long as you invest for several years into each of those areas to improve, then you'll know how to handle any situation that's kind of thrown at you. So for internally generated energy, to me, that's been art throughout my life. I've created art, painting, drawing, writing, books, all of that stuff is your channel, some kind of inspiration is coming through you and you bring it out and give birth to it in the world. And then there's oppositional. I got that from having people try to whack me with a saber on my head. Someone is actively trying to thwart your efforts deliberately. And so you learn that in one-on-one -on -one sports. And then there's cooperative. And for me, another huge part of life opened up when I started in my late 20s, salsa dancing because that's very cooperative. You're trying to uh, make the person feel comfortable. You want to make sure they don't bump into furniture, which happened in certain <laughs> clubs. Uh, you want to make them, uh, there's creativity, there's the lead follow, there's the playing off the music and all of this stuff. So for me, I spent several years and got to be pretty good for a Russian kid uh, in salsa dancing. And actually, that's how, where I met my wife. I was going to say, so those three types of energy. On and and the ladies yeah, came, yeah came she's like coming. yeah first word she ever said to me after sizing me up and down after i asked her to dance was like can you dance because i looked like a white guy you know in a latin club and i'm like yeah oh you, you met in a latin club yeah, yeah. you're also like, dancing you know, so okay. basically that's my secret to life self-generated energies oppositional and cooperative if you spend several years working on each of those you'll pretty much know how to handle whatever life throws at you wow booyah yeah. yeah. <laughs> how are you? Um, 
what are you doing oppositionally these days? Is it Chai Chi? Well, these, the, these days is enough. I'm, I'm kind of done learning the oppositional stuff. And that was largely in the world of sports and martial arts. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I got my training there. I prefer not to be in oppositional environments. There's just so much more fun to do cooperative stuff. Totally. Uh, a couple of years ago, I went through a retreat through a fantastic organization called the Mankind Project. It's worldwide. And it, it was a, kind of an initiation weekend to bring you into full manhood in a safe way, uh, surrounded by other people who had gone through. It. And as part of that, I developed or recommitted to a new mission statement for life. And I, I, at the time, I thought it was the following. I create a world of peace, safety, and love through joyous expression and service. Wow. That's how I know I'm on mission. But recently I was thinking about it and that's not enough. Create would be like writing a book. Right. It's not enough to do it myself. So I changed it slightly to, to say the following. I co-create a world of peace, safety, and love through joyous expression and service. Because for me, most of the juice in life is interacting with other people. Yeah. Just so much more cool stuff happens. As you know, being a host of a podcast, so yeah. much more happens in cooperation. And to bring that creativity and cooperation together, that's where the good stuff is for me. Absolutely. And you get less bruises that way too. <laughs> yes. Believe me, I once had a, a saber blade whip over the my helmet and whack me on the back of the head. And then and I- Is there like nothing had, there? Nothing protecting Yeah, and then broken knuckles on, on the front where if you didn't have your, your guard in the right place and the blade whipped around, you got all kinds of- uh, stuff messed up on your hand too so yeah i learned the hard way it's like immediate reinforcement don't do yeah. that again dopamine's like dopamine's means like adjust your mental model yeah not again tim not again <laughs> oh man well this has been awesome um it's been so much fun to chat with you about this stuff um where can people connect with you tell us more about the book where you want us to get it what kind of formats it's in yeah we'll absolutely the links out we'll put them all in the show notes well, if you know, if you're interested in public speaking, training for your company, brutal website reviews, no holds barred, uh, or if you want to actually have me ad advise you, if you're a senior marketer at a company and you just need someone to be a kind of a shadow CMO, make you look good, wow. I have services for that. All of that is described on timash.com, T-I-M-A-S-H.com. And if you're interested in the book, I, I wish we could talk more about it. They said it covers everything from storytelling to language, the gender differences, culture, our highly social natures, whether it's for personal relationship or business use, you're going to get a lot of mileage out of this book. And it's available in audiobook recorded by me as well as ebook. So all of that's at primalbrain.com. Primalbrain. So check it out, but it's available everywhere. It's, it's worldwide. It's on Amazon. It's on Audible. It's everywhere you want it. 223 pages of goodness. Boom. <laughs> Amen. There it is. Dude, well, I, I know you're, you're a busy man. And when this thing, uh, this is airing as the book is is in full swing, so everyone can literally immediately go get it. Um, but we have to have you come back on here after the the dust is settled from all the promotion and just catch up and maybe talk a little bit more of the, the deeper concepts or the things you've been thinking on lately. Absolutely, Casey. It'd be my pleasure. Awesome, man. Well, again, this has been fantastic. Thank you again for being on here. Um, we had a, a something new happen on the show. I, I'm always taking notes. So I usually have front and back one piece of paper, right? In this case, we broke a record. Never before has this ever happened, but it has two pages of notes front and back. <laughs> what is going on here? You're shattering things. Um, I can't wait to actually read your book now that we've chatted. 
Um, and for those listening, this has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. We will catch you all next time.